0: 21st 2017 my name is Joel Tillis and you are listening to the soul trap as always thank you for taking the time to listen wherever and whenever you're listening we trust that this broadcast finds you on that good and narrow way make sure to check out the soul trap on facebook you can also email us at pastor tillis at org. that's pastor tillis at org, or touch base with us via facebook If you like us, please get in touch with us. If you don't like us, that's okay too. We'll take it all. But uh, we always appreciate hearing from you. Questions, feedback, encouragement. Uh, We appreciate you being with us. I was out last week in Honduras, spending some time there. We have an orphanage that we work with down there. And uh, so I was out, but uh, it is good to be back home. Good to be back in the saddle and looking forward to... A lot of exciting things coming up and a lot of exciting subjects that we're going to be talking about uh, in the near future very soon. It is interesting how some years in history seem to stand out more so than others. And certainly 1947 in the 20th century was a very, very interesting year to say the least. In 1947, Kenneth Arnold, who was a pilot near Mount Rainier, Washington, witnessed aircraft, to use the word lightly, craft which he described as skipping like saucers. And from those words entered the American psyche a new phrase, quote-unquote, flying saucers, even though what he described did not actually look like saucers as we know them. 1947 was the year that UFOs broke into the mainstream collective consciousness the year that Roswell, New Mexico became the Mecca for all things alien, and the year that a thousand books were born into existence as to whether or not what took place out there in Roswell was an air balloon, high-tech military experiment, or truly an alien aircraft from somewhere in outer space. 1947 was also the year that Truman, President Truman, brought together the deadly pieces from a myriad of secret organizations and operations from OSS to across the board, groups to form what has become known as the CIA. To some, the most clandestine and corrupt organization on the face of the earth, the most wicked that has ever been responsible, from everything the MK Ultra to Teletubbies. 1947, fruit flies were the first living beings to reach the edge of space being sent up there on thrusters of V-2 rockets captured from Nazi Germany and reassembled by Nazi scientists brought to America during Operation Paperclip. In 1947, there was a massive current that was gaining ground. And in just one short year in 1947, after almost 2,000 years, Jews were finally going to have their homeland. And for those of us of a particular prophetical bent, the time clock on the times of the Gentiles began ticking away, the end was near, and that began 1947. In 1947, North Korea, out not on most Americans' radar screen, was beginning to brew, and in just a few years, blood would flow down the rough and rugged mountains of that barren and wasted land. So to say the least, 1947 was a very interesting year. But there was something else that happened that year, something that connects that year with the Bible that you hold in your hand or the Bible that you'll take to church this upcoming Sunday. In 1947, the first of what became close to almost a thousand specimens of parchments and papyri were found in caves by a Bedouin boy near Qumran, which became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of some 981-plus different texts discovered between 1947 and 1956 in 11 caves in the eastern Judean desert. You and I know that area today as the West Bank. The caves are located about 2 kilometers inland from the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, from which they derive their name. The consensus is that the Cormoran Cave Scrolls date from the last three centuries B.C. and the first century A.D., in fact, bronze coins found at the same site appear to support the radiocarbon and paleographic dating of the scrolls. The texts are of enormous historical, religious, and linguistic significance, and possibly even extraterrestrial significance. Because they include, it goes on to say, as, as you go on to study, you'll find that they include quite a lot of information in them. They include the second oldest known surviving manuscripts of the works, later included in the Hebrew Bible canon. Most of the texts are written in Hebrew, some with Aramaic and varying dialects of that region, a few in Greek. From the Judean desert are also included some that are written in Latin and Arabic. Most texts are written on parchment, some on papyrus, and one is actually written on copper. The scrolls have traditionally been identified with the ancient Jewish sect uh, sect called the Essenes, although some recent interpretations have challenged this association and argue that the scrolls were penned by priests in Jerusalem, the Zadokites, or other unknown Jewish groups. Eventually, after being discovered... They were taken to Lebanon for protection due to the war raging over Israel's independence. They were there for six years when they were eventually sold for a quarter of a million dollars and brought to the Rockefeller Museum. Yes, that Rockefeller in Jerusalem. Due to a later war, they were again moved where they are now protected and guarded in a Jewish museum. Okay, so what does that have to do with the soul trap? Well, as I intimated earlier, there might just be more than religious and scientific and archaeological significance. There may be, as rumor would have it, an extraterrestrial significance to the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, Miles Copeland was stationed in Damascus as a chief station officer working for the freshly minted CIA when he was supposedly approached one morning by a man dressed as a Bedouin trying to get help, although there was some question as to whether or not this man was a Bedouin or simply posing as one. What he wanted was connections with someone who might be able to help decipher parts of a scroll he had found, scrolls that were supposedly some of the first parchments recovered from the desert caves of the Dead Sea. Parts of its language were far more ancient, he explained, than he was familiar with. And possibly, the U.S. would have power to get him and the parchments into the right hands so as to get the information hidden within the difficult text. It was a Hebrew text. There was no doubt about that. But it was a highly unusual form of Hebrew, one that was far beyond what any was able to decipher. Miles, the CIA chief operating officer, was not allowed to take the parchments, nor would the man go with him. He was allowed to take pictures, enough pictures of the text to pass on and hopefully convince those in power that what the man from the desert had was indeed something of profound value. He took the pictures to the American embassy in Beirut to see if he could uh, if it could be transferred to the right location. And that, as the old saying goes, is where the story grows cold. Miles never saw the pictures again. Later, the rumors were that those were indeed parchments from the Dead Sea Scroll, but parchments that were of such a peculiar kind, of such an ancient and unknown text, that there was a deep secret around them. That was the rumor, anyway. Now, we fast forward almost 50 years to 1991, and a man by the name of Timothy Cooper, a name well known to people here in the UFO community, in 1991, Timothy Cooper entered the UFO community with a splash and a bang, bringing controversial and supposedly secret documents and a secret deep-throat source, sources that were given him very, very interesting information and detailed information about the government's direct involvement and cover-up of extraterrestrial or interdimensional or inner space visitors. In a good book called Top Secret, The Pyramids and the Pentagon by Nick Redfern, a really good book, of course it has some bones that you're going to have to spit out, but Nick Redfern gives us some further information about this in his book. He says on page 21, in 1991, a man named Timothy Cooper of Big Bear Lake, California, exploded onto the UFO research scene amid a storm of furious debate. This is not surprising because Cooper brought with him the UFOlogical table, a huge selection of very controversial data and official-looking documentation of a reportedly top-secret nature. Cooper claimed the priceless stash had been secretly provided to him by a number of deep-throat-like sources with personal knowledge of some of the U.S. government's most deeply guarded and troubling secrets relative to extraterrestrial visitation. The startling papers said to have been leaked to Cooper, told of classified investigations into UFO activity and of crashed UFO incidents in, New, in the New Mexico desert in 1947. They also told of a powerful group of people buried deep within the U.S. government, from the CIA, the National Security Agency, the military, and a wealth of other agencies tasked with studying and hiding from the public and the media the truth of the Roswell Affair, as well as other sensational UFO events and alien-themed information. The secret group supposedly became known as MJ-12, or the Majestic 12. One of the most interesting of all of Cooper's sources, Redfern says, was a man that Cooper initially referred to only as Bob. This particularly talkative source claimed to Cooper in a face-to-face interview in 1990 that while stationed at Holloman Air Force Base, New Mexico, in 1948, Bob had been exposed to a lengthy document on the crash of an incredibly advanced aircraft of unknown origins within the confines of the deeply sensitive White Sands Proving Ground. Cooper later made available the cover page of a document that he had acquired from yet another of his sources that was dated July 16, 1947, titled Air Incident Report on Flying Disc. It bolstered the story of the crash of a UFO in New Mexico in the summer of 1947, given that the White Sands Proving Ground today, called the White Sands Missile Range, was and certainly still is, one of the United States' most secretive locales. It was here that the captured Nazi scientists spent years working on the rocket and missile-based programs in the immediate period after World War II. The document also reinforced the image of Cooper cultivating distinctively interesting sources of data within both the military and the intelligence communities. Now, I know that that's a rather lengthy portion from Redfern's book, but it goes to show you that this guy, Timothy, and his source, Bob, and others, had a lot of information. Some of it was believed, some of it wasn't believed, and there's always, in all of these kind of situations, confusing as to what's up and what's down, what's in and what's out, what's black, what's white, what's true, what is not. But the information that Timothy was giving was of a profound, profound um, importance, The real rub, though, however, centered just around who was Timothy Cooper's secret source and how he came into contact with this source. Well, it turns out his source was his dad, which normally would prompt an immediate dismissal of the man as merely simply saying, my daddy told me it was so, so it must be true. But the problem was that his dad, Mr. Cooper, the man I just mentioned a few moments ago as Bob, had an actual, verifiable, and profound military career. If anyone had access to certain truths or dimensional perceptions, it could possibly have been this guy. Why? Because he was directly involved in a program called Reprographics. Now you might say, what the heck is Reprographics? Reprographics is a blanket term that encompasses multiple methods of reproducing content such as scanning, photography, xerography, and digital printing. The term applies both to physical and hard copy and digital soft copy reproductions of documents and images. Reproduction of documents and images. Timothy's dad was charged with reproducing certain photographs of an older sort that were of an extremely high value to the powers that be. Photographs of what appeared to be parchments scraps of a language, Hebrew in nature, but beyond anything that he had ever seen. Here we pick up with Redfern's book again on page 23. Harry Cooper continued that on the occasion in 1948, a Colonel Paul Helmick, who was a former commanding officer with the Amalgordo Army Air Force Base in New Mexico, revived on site with a document pouch locked to his wrist and with two MPs ominously by his side, both sporting machine guns. Clearly something of deep importance was afoot. According to Harry Cooper, Timothy's dad, all of the on-duty personnel assigned from him were told to leave the office, after which ten copies of the document in question were laboriously made by Cooper at the express and stern orders of Helmick. Also copied were a number of photographs contained within the report that allegedly showed a crashed UFO at a desert locale in White Sands. According to Timothy Cooper, the most sensational revelation related to the crash of the Curious Flying Machine at the mountain-surrounded White Sands 1947 was that within its wrecked confines, confines, nothing less than remains of an incredibly old Hebrew Bible were carefully retrieved by the military operatives tasked with the recovery of the craft. In other words, his father made the claim that what he was reproducing and what they had found was an incredibly old Hebrew Bible with a dialect and a range far beyond anything that they had seen. His father had informed him that the near priceless artifact was secretly provided to select trusted scholars at Harvard who, expertly conversant in the Hebrew language, all the way back to its earliest times, were tasked with trying to translate its complex text, which they were reportedly only partially successful at doing. One of those who allegedly studied the material at Harvard was a Hebrew expert named William Foxwell Albright. What's so special about William Foxwell Albright? Notably, he was part of the team of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Albright had been involved in researching the manuscripts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Something very akin to the Dead Sea Scrolls walked in the door of Chief Operating Officer Miles in 1947. Something very similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls and that ancient Hebrew text were supposedly found in a UFO crash reported by Timothy Cooper's dad, who at the time was charged with making special copies of them according to a special progress, a process that they had. Now, don't jump to conclusions. I'm not saying that the Bible is an ancient alien text. I'm not even saying that this story is true. I am simply saying that this is a funky story. And if there is an alien connection to the powers of darkness, as we believe that there is, is there an even a sliver of truth to the story? And to what extent would spiritual and demonic and dimensional powers go to make a connection between them and the Bible that the world is familiar with? Redfern goes on to state, page 26, one of Cooper's sources who went by a pseudonym Thomas Cantwheel, informed him that the Hebrew Bible was confirmed as the long sought-after key to Understanding Extraterrestrial UFO Sightings, and this information was shared with the Vatican as early as 1949. Moreover, Cooper added that his informants had advised him the manuscript found within the crashed UFO was written in a Proto-Hebrew language. It was deemed by William F. Friedman, a renowned codebreaker who in 1952 held the title Chief Cryptologist at NSA, and Lambros Kalimos, a colleague and an ultimate successor to Friedman, It was deemed by them to be incredibly old and not at all easily understood or interpreted. It may very well have been the oldest language that they had ever come across. Redfern quotes three things here. Three things were certain. One, that the translated parts of the ancient Bible found in New Mexico in 1947 dovetailed closely with certain data contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Two, that the book's pages held religion-challenging secrets, suggesting that many early accounts of amazing miracles, angelic manifestations, demonic activity, strange visions, dreams, and apparitions, all of those things, all of them, may have had less to do with the supernatural and more to do with the interdimensional. Third, that a significant amount of time was spent by U.S. officials analyzing the data in the recovered Bible relative to the book of Daniel and the other Dead Sea Scrolls. Redfern states that the stark conclusion of senior elements in the NSA, therefore, was that the cornerstones of worldwide religion were very possibly nothing less than the distorted tales of early visitations from enigmatic travelers born within the depths of faraway galaxies, and that this was somehow in evidence in the material on the legends of Daniel as found in the flying saucer recovered from white sands. Little wonder then that the story and its links to the Dead Sea Scrolls was deemed one that could never, ever be told to the public at large. So can you begin to see what's going on here? Do you think that when Satan and the Antichrist show up, that they are going to look like bad guys, like weird dragons from the underworld, flying through the streets and eating people and sending the world into chaos? Maybe to some degree, yes. Or, or is it possible that they will take upon themselves another guys, at least for the first three and a half years of the tribulation? A veil. One that is a, is a collective of science, of religion, philosophy, and merges them all together in a way that is worldwide, a way that mankind can embrace, in a way that the world will accept. At this point, we are guessing, because according to the myth, only a few people have ever actually seen the text in question, the text that supposedly unlocks the whole mystery or starts one. You have to believe, first of all, the story of Miles and the Bedouin who walked in with this ancient text. You have to believe that there was an actual UFO crash at White Sands. You have to believe a lot of things. There are a lot of dots to be connected and lines to be drawn. Ever heard of Ed Mitchell? Edgar Dean Ed Mitchell was a NASA astronaut. As the lunar module pilot of Apollo 14, he spent nine hours supposedly walking on the lunar surface in the highland regions of the moon, making making him the sixth person to supposedly walk on the moon. So what does Ed Mitchell have to do with our story of UFOs and the Dead Sea Scroll. Well, Dr. Mitchell has publicly expressed his opinion that he was 90% sure, quote, 90% sure that many of the thousands of unidentified flying objects or UFOs recorded since the 1940s belonged to visitors from other planets. Dateline NBC conducted an interview with Mitchell on April 19, 1996, during which he discussed meetings with officials from three countries, who claim to have had personal encounters with extraterrestrials. Now, this is not a guy that's some, some idiot sitting out somewhere in a bar telling stories or, or washing off the carport in front of his, his you know, house and just passing the time, some lunatic or some fringe guy. This is a guy who supposedly went to the moon, an astronaut, a smart man. And what did he say? Well, in 2004, he told the St. Petersburg Times that, quote, a cabal of insiders in the U.S. government were studying recovered alien bodies and that this group had stopped briefing U.S. presidents after John F. Kennedy. He said, quote, we all know that UFOs are real. Now the question is, where do they come from? A couple of years ago, Dr. Edgar Mitchell had a conversation with an investigator at the Disclosure Project in Washington, D.C. He indicated that some type of intelligence has visited us from space. When asked what he thought was the real secret to all of this concerning the UFOs, he said the answers, all of them, are in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness. All of these scrolls, have the revelation within them. The text that Dr. Mitchell was referring to in the War of the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness describe an invisible war where two sides are in epic battle for the earth. The angels and humankind are described as being part of the fight. Page 414 through 416 of the Dead Sea Scrolls state the following, warrior angels are in our muster and he that is mighty in war is in our throng. The army of his spirits marches beside us. Our horsemen come like clouds or like banks of dew to cover the earth or like torrential showers to rain judgment on all that grows in it, opposing the good forces of the forces of darkness. But for corruption thou hast made Belial an angel of hostility. All his dominion is darkness and guilt. All the spirits that are associated with him are angels of destruction. They follow only the laws of darkness and their craving is directed toward it. Now, we know that the Dead Sea Scrolls are not scripture, and we know that the Bible is not based on alien technology, but what if, just what if, the powers of darkness in this current dispensation presented themselves in such a way that merges philosophy, whereby philosophy and science and religion can all meld into one, all of them answered? It seems that almost every day we are closer to full disclosure. We hear more and more in the mainstream, Or as others have said, full confirmation. Would it be beyond the powers of darkness to pose as star people who seeded this land and whose ancient texts have been misunderstood? But at some point in the near future, maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, at some point in the future, they return with goodwill in their heart and love in their eyes and the empathy and the condensation to be able to explain to us the text that we hold in our hand that we have never fully understood, but only they understand. Would it be beyond the realm of possibility that the last introduction of Satan to man is over Scripture, just as his first introduction to man was over Scripture? Yea, hath God said. In a completely unrelated side note, Take a moment and Google the shrine of the book, a wing of the Israeli museum where, that houses the Dead Sea Scrolls in Jerusalem. Just Google it. Just Google the shrine of the book, the Israeli museum, and tell me what that shrine looks like. Is it possible that it looks like a UFO? Have a good day.